So in our transition, we actually had three major items that we were trying to accomplish that we had to address. One was finding a full-time pastor. Check. The other was settling our, where we were going to be physically located. Check. And the third was establishing a diaconate, which is what we're in the middle of right now. And there was a host of a lot of other things in between, but these were like, kind of like the major items that we were working on. So today's sermon has to do with that third item, is establishing a diaconate. The sermon is going to be more along the lines of informative, and uh, um, there's going to be some things along the line that I'm going to be charging you with, and it's going to be primarily to the church, though I hope if you're a visitor today or a curious person who wants to know more about this thing called the Christian faith, I hope that you will see the wisdom and the grace of God through, through all of this as well. The Word of God tells us in Ephesians, in uh, chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it, and I'll be reading from the New King James Version. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ. And this is talking about offices that God had established within the church. The office of the apostle ended when the last of them went home to be with the Lord. There is no more office of the apostle. In EGBC, we have with us elders and pastor teachers in that office. And all of this, note, all of this is for one purpose. It is for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now we're talking about deacons today. Where did that come from? Where is that? What's up with that? The word deacon is derived from a Greek word. It's just kind of borrowed from it, really. The word, the word in the Greek is diakonos or diakonia. And it is widely used in Scripture and, depending upon the context, can be translated using different English words. Sometimes it can be translated waiting on tables, serving on tables, which is what you're going to see in our main primary text. Sometimes it's translated service. Sometimes it's translated ministry. But it's translated different depending upon the context. In the verb, it basically means just to serve. In verse 1, like again, I said, it, it's going to be talking, it's translated as distribution in relation to the daily distribution of the, the chapter and the verse that we're going to be reading in Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. You can turn there if you like. Other places in scriptures in Luke chapter 10, verse 40, the word is used in a passage that actually we have a group named after, the Mary Martha group. You guys, you ladies know that one. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him, this is Jesus, and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve, diaconine, alone? Therefore tell her to help me. Jesus, when he was charging his disciples about the nature of being a servant, said to them in Matthew 20, 26, Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your diaconon, your servant. Paul, when writing about Jesus himself, says in Romans 15, 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant, a diaconon, to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And so the word is commonly used. And at some point, and we don't know where, 
the use of the word became attached to a church office. We went from diaconon to deacon. Specifically, we see some uses of it in Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and the deacons. So the word is, is now being specifically used. In 1 Timothy 3.8, Paul lays out the specific requirements for office of the deacon. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given much too much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. So when did it happen? When did this new office come into play? And that's going to bring us to our main text today in Acts chapter 6. If you would turn there, Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Now in those days, when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, Philip, with a great name, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And then the word of, the, the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now let me give you a little background about this book. The book of Acts is... Uh, in the Greek, praxis apostolon. It basically means the Acts of the Apostles. It was written by Luke for a man named Theophilus, but it was intended for all believers to read. And it's all about the witness of the Apostles to the world of Jesus Christ, the Savior. That's what Acts is all about. And what it really also represents is kind of a continuation of the Acts of Jesus Christ in the world through human instruments through the apostles and through the early church. Robert Boyd, who I, I like to read his, his handbook a lot, used these words to summarize the book of Acts. It's all about power, preaching, persecution, and progress. Power, preaching, persecution, and progress. And what we have just read in chapter 6 is the focusing part of the first uh, eight chapters of Acts where it focuses mainly on the early church in the city of Jerusalem. Because that's where its birth city was kind of from. That's what the first eight chapters is all about. And as I said, it's here that the majority of scholars, and I personally believe that the apostles established this office of the deacon. And now that we are in a place where we are also getting ready to establish, or better, adopt that same office here, there are some things that you need to know. Some of you already know these things. But there are some of you who are new to this whole concept, and I want to hopefully shed some light on it, but also, if you're a member here, explain to you what your role will be in this process. Verse 1. We're going to take this verse by verse. Now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, notice the condition. That's the event that triggered. That's the trigger that, that, 
that made this event. The number of disciples was multiplying. This is the first issue in this early church where they had an obstacle that wasn't coming from the outside. See, they had already been arrested by the Jewish leaders of the day and instructed, you're not going to talk about the name of Jesus. That came from the outside. But this is the first issue that actually arises from within the church itself. And it's a kind of a tricky point, really. Why would the great numbers cause this event? That's the question. Why? What, what does greater numbers do? Well, I suggest to you that in the early stages of this little church, they were meeting on Solomon's portico, the apostles themselves were able to kind of have a hand in the managing of the distribution of the food. But as God added numbers, that became clear that it could no longer be that way. The apostles, and I say this because they knew what it meant to serve others. This was not something foreign to them. They knew from the Lord that he who would be greatest among you shall be servant of all. They were not afraid to get their hands dirty. They were not afraid to, to get sore backs or stay up late at night to minister and to feed the flock of God. But this event wasn't a test on their willingness to serve. Rather, I believe it was a key event in the further growing and the defining of the church. But let's go back to the narrative. There arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now, the early Jewish Christians established kind of a communal type of living. They sold everything, and they had all things in common, and they were helping one another. It was just part of their culture. As a matter of fact, if you go to Israel today, and you go to some of the sites, like I went to this one site, it's called the, the, the Jesus Boat site. They uncovered in the mud of the Sea of Galilee, which is a joke because it's smaller than Lake Tahoe, but at the Sea of Galilee, this boat that's over 2,000 years old. It would have been there around the time of Christ. And so you go, you can see this boat, and it's really cool. And it's on a, it's on a thing called a kibbutz, which is a commune. Because the Jewish settlers, before they became a nation again, they would live in these communes. And they would pull together resources, and they would build, they would build walls to protect themselves because they were always getting shot at. And so there's a lot of these kibbutzes all over Israel that are kind of cool because they have the best cafeterias. <laughs> I'm serious. The tour bus goes there so you can eat. <laughs> and you're eating with Jewish families. So, you know, it's, it's something that, that, that I think was unique to their culture and everything, but it in no way means that all Christians are to practice this type of living. But they all shared things in common. They, they, they had everything together, and, it, and an old rivalry reared up its ugly head. And it's the rivalry between the Hebrews and the Hellenists. Now, who are the Hellenists? And there's a few views on that. Some say they were Jews who spoke Greek because they were part of the original dispersion of the Jews. What do I mean by that? Israel, as a nation, was divided into two parts. It had a north and a south. And the southern part had ten tribes. The Assyrian Empire wiped that out. And they dispersed everyone. And they emptied out the capital city of Samaria, and they repopulated it with people who didn't live in that land. And those people who live in that land started getting attacked by the animals, and they said, hey, how do we worship the God of this land? Because, see, in the pagan mind in those times, gods were geographically limited. You had gods of areas. 
Today we call them gangs, but that's the, that's the whole idea. And so somebody came over there, an off-priest told them how to do it, and, and that's why Jews don't like Samaritans, by the way. The southern kingdom consisted of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and it was dispersed by the Babylonian Empire. And people were spread across all over the world because that's what they would do. They would take people out and they would move them all over. So you had Jews in between the Old and the New Testament. You had Jews all over the world. A lot of them were in North Africa in a city called Alexandria, which is now under the sea. It was located off of Libya. A city that was founded by the name of Alexander the Great, whose empire was established in that in-between time between the Old and the New Testament. He went and conquered all these territories, and he did something interesting. He had one legion, one legion, consisted of teachers, philosophers, artists, musicians, all that stuff. That's, that's four to 5,000 individuals. And everywhere he went, he would deposit so that they would establish Greek culture in the empire. Because if you change the language, you change the culture, and you control it. And there was one place where he made an exception, where he felt that he should not do it. Jerusalem. So they spoke Hebrew. But the Jews all over this empire learned Greek. As a matter of fact, there is a translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek so that the Grecian, the Jews of Alexandria could read it. It's called the Septuagint. You might have heard that term. If you have a study Bible, that's what that is. Whenever you see the words S-E-P-T, that's Septuagint. So a lot of people believe that they were, some believe that they were these these Jews, they came back from the dispersion, they spoke Greek, they were kind of in the Greek culture, but they were not Hebrew-speaking. Other people believed that they were proselytes. Gentiles converted into Judaism and then subsequently converted into Christianity. Some also maintained they were just Jews who were sort of, I guess, compared to the Pharisees, these liberal progressives. You know, they were very forward-thinking, adopting the cultures of the dominating, occupying force, which was basically Rome, but also the culture being Greek. As a matter of fact, many of the group called the Sadducees were like that. They were considered that. And the Sadducees were the ones who, as you remember, also opposed Jesus, were um, the group of which the family of the high priest was a member of. You see, the, Jewish, the whole Jewish thing was like this. The temple in Jerusalem, controlled by the Sadducees. All the synagogues, controlled by the Pharisees. So there was this animosity always between those who could speak Hebrew and those who could not. And it goes far, far back into their history. But this complaint, if not dealt with correctly, could have split this baby church. It could have caused a division where you would have had Gentile type of believers over here and then Jewish type of believers over here and no connection in between. So it would have been a major setback and it had to be handled correctly. So let's see how they handled it. Verse 2, Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. That word for desirable can also be translated as pleasing. In 1 John 3.22, it says, And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things which are pleasing in his sight. The apostles realized they had hit the limit. 
the threshold. They were on it. They couldn't go no further. They could not be involved in this, this serving anymore. Not because they didn't want to or, or it wasn't their desire, but anymore because it, if they did it, they would be neglecting something far, far more important. And that is the Word of God. The Word of God is the literal content of the Christian faith. That's what it is. If you mishandle this in any ministry, you've already gone off. Pastors and teachers have this moral obligation to correctly handle the Word of God, to feed the sheep, as Pastor Justin has been telling us. I myself, I don't mind. I think you guys know. I don't mind doing stuff. I don't mind getting dirty with you guys. You know? Well, I don't like going on roofs in the middle of summer, but everything else is cool. <laughs> or I don't crawl in crawl spaces, by the way. I don't do that. That's why I have my son. <laughs> and he's here today, and he's, he's, he's recovering very well. He's a little puffy by the guys, so... You don't mind this. None of us elders mind doing these things, but as an elder, we're one called, and we're ones who will be accountable before God for the gifts and the calling that He has invested in us. That's what we're accountable to. We have to pay attention to that. But notice who this is addressed to. They gather the multitude. They gather the crowd. This is addressed to the church. Why? Because you, church, share in the responsibility in making sure that those holding the offices in this local body have as their primary focus that for which they were called. You hold us accountable. You also help to facilitate that we can do what we can do. It was addressed to the church. And why was this? for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's the whole goal. That's the whole goal. So let it not be thought that those who serve in offices of elder or deacon are somehow more successful than those who do not. That is absolute nonsense. We are your servants. And for us elders, there's that, old, that, that ever sober reminder of James 3.1. I think you talked about that, Justin which has more than one occasion kept me up at night thinking, Lord, I know I'm saved. I know where I'm going. But am I using what you gave me to the best? More than one occasion I sit up at night thinking about that because of the responsibility with the offices. So in light of this issue of the distribution, the reality of the priority of the ministry of the word for the apostles and that the church shares in the responsibility of addressing it, the apostles gave a command. Verse 3. Therefore, brethren, seek out among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Alexander Strzok, in his book, The Minister of Mercy, the New Testament Deacon, which I know some of the guys are reading on the men's group, had this quote, Good leaders always distinguish themselves by their ability to skillfully confront troublesome issues and be decisive. In fact, confronting problems is a major part of leadership responsibility. 
We're problem children, I guess. <laughs> but notice he says, he, the instruction is for them to seek out from among you, seven men. That word, seek out, it carries the idea of look at with careful inspection. Examine. Inspect. Study. Carefully. Carefully. I know that there's this big difference between the men and women is that when, when guys go out to buy clothes, we look for what's cheapest and what can get us out of there the fastest. <laughs> women study and examine <laughs> carefully. Except maybe you with shoes. You're pretty good with you. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he's saying. That's what he's telling them. To look at it, to carefully inspect. The mood of the word which is the mood, by mood we mean the manner in which the speaker relates the idea of the verb to reality, is imperative. This is a command. This is not a suggestion. This is not the apostle saying, hey, we need some help. Let's put out a sign-up sheet in the foyer. All you guys who want to help, you know, fill out there, put your phone number, email address, we'll get back to you, you know, somebody will contact you. No, this is a command. This is a, a command. And it was done in a very simple, direct way. It was basically the apostle saying, look, church, select seven men. That's what he was saying. It was a command. The apostles only gave two requirements. They were to be, one, men of good reputation, two, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Now, if we had to examine men today for this office, that wouldn't be much to go on. We're not given any additional information in Acts as to the further criteria. And that's because Luke's book of Acts is what we call a historical narrative, which is different from the instructional essay stuff of the epistles. So if we want to get more about this criteria, we're going to have to look at the writings of someone who at the time of this event was not even an apostle, but he was a very young, zealous Pharisee named Saul, who would actually one day persecute the church for a time in ignorance and even oversee the uh, giving and of approval of the martyring of one of these men who are going to be selected. But once he was converted, he was renamed to Paul, and he gave some instructions in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. And would you all please turn there? 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. Likewise, and the word likewise is there, is because in 1 through 7, he's talking about the qualifications for elders. Likewise, deacons must be reverent not double-tongued, not given too much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of faith with a pure conscience. But let these also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their houses well. For those who have secured those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. I've always 
been taken by that last verse. And it's because I wonder if when Paul was writing about great boldness, if he was thinking about the face of Stephen. But obviously to cover all these would, would take at least two whole sermons. We're not going to go there. But I, wanna, I just want to get on some of the high level differences that need to be pointed out for your benefit, for our benefit, between the elders and the deacons. Five of the eight qualifications listed actually also appear in the lists of the elders. Of these eight qualifications, five of them also apply for the qualifications of an elder. But, the, but there are differences that have to be noted. The list is shorter than the one for the elders. The one for the elders has about 16 qualifications. The deacons only has eight. And this speaks to the centrality of the office of the elder to the church. Elders had more on ruling and governing. Elders have to be able to teach. My friend uh, Frank Walker in his book on biblical church government, said elders are necessary for the proper government of a church. Deacons are helpful for the good of the church, but are not, strictly speaking, necessary. The labors of deacons within the church body, when carried out faithfully, will be a blessing to the elders and to the church as a whole. I'm not sure I really like that, strictly speaking, necessary part. Kind of brought it up to him, and he does what he normally does and shuts me down. I love that guy. I just can't win a single debate with him. Of equal importance are three qualifications which deacons have listed explicitly. They must be reverent. If you have the New King James Version or if the ESV, that's going to be dignified. Or if the King James Version, that's going to be grave. This is to mean they must be serious about their work. Why? Because if they're not serious about their work, the ministry of the word suffers. So they got to be serious about their work. They must not be double-tongued. There are differences of opinion on the exact meaning of this, but I hold that it essentially has to do with basically insincere speech, saying one thing to one person and another thing to another person with the intent of manipulating and controlling the whole situation. Deacons can't do that. They must be holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Now, even though this isn't explicitly spelled out for elders, the fact that elders have to teach means that it's implicitly there but it had to be called out on the deacons because they don't have to teach, but they still have the same requirement. You must be able to hold to the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. And what these differences between the two show us is that diaconate has more to do with the temporal needs than the spiritual. But this in no way should give the impression, nor should anyone hold to the thought that the office of the deacon is somehow of inferior or lower. It is not. The office of the deacon is a ministry of mercy and a ministry of love to the body. That's what the deacons do. God is very, very concerned about the temporal needs. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 through 40, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it. It's Jesus when he's talking about the, the judgment to come. He says, then the king will say to those on the right hand, come you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? 
When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. God cares about the temporal needs deeply. And in summary, these two offices of elder and deacon, they're made really to complement one another. Strzok draws out this parallel between the office and the elder and deacon and the two broad classifications in the Bible of word and deed. The elder being into the ministry of the word and the deacons being focusing on the ministry of doing or the deed. And there is a striking connection here in our text between the ministry of the word and waiting on tables, word and deed. So I submit to you that deacons are an extension of the ministry of the elders, an extension of the ministry of the elders. They are set up to allow the elders to be able to focus our priorities correctly so that we can give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. It is not that I did not want to be preaching all this time. It is not that I was avoiding it. I know some of you kept asking me, hey man, when are you going to preach? It's that there were many other temporal needs that had to be cared for. And without a diaconate in place, as Ernie always says eloquently, the buck stops with the elders. <laughs> it does. It does. Verse 5 and 6. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose... So the church had a responsibility to participate in the selection process. They had the task. They had to carefully inspect the character of the men. They chose Stephen and Philip and Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, the proselyte from Antioch. And they set them before the apostles. And when they had prayed, notice that. The whole matter had to be done prayerfully. The whole matter. They were not... Rushing, but they were steady. How much time they took, we're not given. We're not given that information. We're not privy or aware of how often they probably did go back and forth with the apostles to ask about more criteria, more stuff, more that was going on. But the simple presence of that chapter, that verse that I read in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, even though it is from Paul who was not present, kind of gives us the criteria the apostles always had. It's just, I think of it as Paul simply putting in clear detail what Peter and the guys were doing instinctively. Because they had been with Jesus. They depended upon God to show them, as we should, in prayer. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And this, of course, is referring to the apostles who were setting these men apart to functions as extensions to their ministry, functions as extensions of their responsibilities. 1 Timothy 5.22 says, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourselves pure. So it is very clear that the apostles would not have done that. They would not have just laid hands on these guys. This wasn't something like, Hey guys, you choose seven, bring them here, and then we're done. No, there was a process. We just, we just don't see it all. There was something going on. There was a, the running of time. Because it does take time to examine a person. 
it does take time. It happened. And these apostles would never have done that. They would never have just laid hands hastily on anyone. They would have made sure that these men had the character necessary for the job. Now, how do you do it? How do you do it, you know? There isn't really a lot written on how to establish a diaconate. We know that it is done to complement the elders. We know that it is done under the authority of the elders, the laying on of hands. We know that the church must play a part in examining the men as well as the elders, by default, the elders by default. We know they are presented before the congregation. We know all this. But how do you actually lay it all out? The Bible is silent. And that's the beauty of it. You see, this book is so wonderful. You can insert it into any culture, these things into any culture. And even though it might look different how they establish elders in Southeast Asia or Africa or Eastern Europe, it will be the same. That's the beauty of, of the Christian faith. You can apply it everywhere. As long as it's done biblically, you're safe. Verse 7, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Notice that the word of God spread. Now this is a phrase that's actually used three times in Acts, in Acts itself. It's used here, after the apostles dealt wisely with an issue which could have split the church. It's also in Acts 12, 24, when King Herod imprisoned Peter with the intent of killing him in the morning. And those of you guys who have read Acts chapter 12, an angel came in, freed Peter. He went to the house where the believers were, and they didn't recognize him first. They freaked out. They shut the door in his face. Thought he was a Jehovah's Witness, you know. Turned off the lights. <laughs> pretended like no one was home. I know you guys... <laughs> And God sent the angel to set him free, and Herod the next morning is exalting himself as a god, and he dies. And then it says, but the word of God grew and multiplied. In Acts 19, it's when Paul comes to Ephesus, the great city of Ephesus, and the Jewish synagogues in Ephesus allowed him to reason with them for three months, but eventually they reject him, and they begin to speak evil of the way. That's what Christianity used to be called, the way. Some of the Jews particular set of them called the seven sons of Sceva unwisely tried to use the name of the Lord as a magic charm to cast out a demon. They told the demon, we adjure you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Come out. Those of you guys who read the story know what happened. They got beat. <laughs> Bad. And when that happened, great fear spread upon all of Ephesus. And Ephesus was a city that was full of much darkness. People came out repenting, confessing their sins, burning scrolls of magic into a big bonfire worth 50,000 pieces of silver. And it says, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. So here's the progression. The word of God spread. The word of God grew and multiplied. The word of God grew mightily and prevailed. Under pressure and persecution, this is always the case in Scripture. As a church, we grow under the worst circumstances. And we're called as believers toward long-suffering and patience 
Because nothing can stop the word of God from spreading. Nothing. I was thinking today of a recent news event. There is now a third gender in California. So there are laws in the book to prosecute you for what you think, hate crimes. Laws in the book that prevent you from saying certain words to be gender neutral. And now there are laws to teach you that there's actually a third gender. But no matter what we live in, no matter, no matter what they do, the word of God is mighty and it will prevail. But it will be patience for you guys. And why we want this diaconate? Because a healthy church makes healthy believers. Healthy believers influence the people around them. And we can stop. Stop this, this madness. Or I can stop playing with this microphone. <laughs> and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. If you want to hear that literally, it's the number of disciples was being multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Being multiplied by whom? By God. He was bringing the growth. He was doing it. So let's go for the application. Let's go for the last in, the first out. Yes, God does bring the growth, but this does not release any believer from being an active member in the church. God will bring the growth, but you and I have responsibilities. No church member should be sitting on the sidelines thinking they don't need to do anything because God is going to do it all. And I think as we looked at the account of the establishing of the diaconate, you can see this. He is choosing to do things through you. God is bringing the growth, but he is choosing it to do it through us. Now that's a mind blower because he doesn't really need us. It's like Ethan, my son, you know. I saw him out in the front yard helping Jana paint this piece of wood. He painted a section about this big. This thing's like four by eight, right? Jana doesn't need Ethan to do it. But it's a blast for him to get out there and to paint and to come out painted, basically, is what happened. <laughs> I had my kids sitting across me at the dinner table. <sighs> yeah. Okay. But it was, it was a joyful for him. You know, Jenna didn't need him, but it was a joy for her to have him there to help, to do the painting. If we could get him to do the cleaning, Elias, we're okay. <laughs> Number two, what is most important is most important. I know that's cheesy. But what is most important is most important, and that is the ministry of the Word of God. As we as a church focus on this aspect of church, the ministry of the Word, we will be a healthy church. The minute we take our eyes off of this is when we start to grow weak. And I believe that this is the reason why many of the churches today resort to the marketing and the showbiz techniques in order to keep their seats filled because they get sidetracked from the ministry of the word. And it's sad to see that. They neglect the most important thing. Number three, no church member is without responsibility to the church. Every person who is a member, every adult who is a member here, should be ready to participate in the process of establishing the diaconate when you're called upon. Everyone. We saw a good response out of all of you in a response to the selection of Pastor Justin, let it not be true that when it comes to the selection of the office of the deacon, 
that you would give anything less than the same attention to the matter. Let it not be true. And that is my charge to you, EGBC. Give it your full attention. We'll let you know what's going on. We're still figuring some things out ourselves, how we're going to do it, exactly the steps. But we're making steady progress. We're going forward. Now, if you're a visitor here today, I'm not going to do you this disservice by telling you, you need Jesus, let's pray and let's go. I, I just, that's just terrible. I don't want to do that. But what I am going to tell you is that what you're witnessing here today is the preparing of people who follow Jesus for a task at hand. What you're witnessing is, is something different. All of us in this room, we're not all who we once were, right? And what would we do with this process before? See ya. You know. Hire someone to do it. <laughs> we all put our faith, we all put our whole being upon faith in Jesus for our salvation. We've all confessed, we've all repented of our sins and cried out to God, I need you. I believe in you. You are the truth. And if you're a visitor here today, what you're seeing is something truly unique. You're seeing the body of Christ function as a body of Christ. And I hope that that stirs your mind to make you understand that the reason why we do the things we do is because we are, as Pastor Justin says, Jesus followers. We do things the way he does them because he has literally changed our lives, changed us from what we were before. Not too long ago, Dante, he showed me this thing on his phone. <laughs> And he's laughing. It was about a guy who was caught in McDonald's selling drugs through the drive-thru. Now, the reason why he said, sent that to me is because that's what I used to do on Mac Road McDonald's, not too far from here. It's actually done a lot. That's what I used to do, not who I used to be, something totally different. We all in this room embrace the truth that happened over 2,000 years ago. Because it was not just a mere event in history, but it was actually the meaning of history itself. So if you're a visitor here today, you are amongst a family of believers. And if you have questions about this, all of us are ready to help you. To help you understand the truth. But for the members of EGBC, there's a lot more I could talk about the deacons. But I wanted to just remind you. You have a part to play. You will be called upon to play that part. Be diligent. Be diligent. Pray for us as we examine men. Pray for us as we go through the process. Pray that we would have the wisdom to know how to be steady and yet also careful and not be hasty to have that balance. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. It was a bit informative today, a different type of sermon. But Lord, I know many of the, the people in this room, many of my brothers and sisters, we understand what's before us. We understand what you have set before us. We understand our roles. We understand your word governs it all. We understand that you, you desire this for EGBC. So Lord, go before us. Make this happen. 
Show us what all that we must do and give us the hearts and the minds to be diligent in the matter and do those things. We ask this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.